Let's go to Ruth chapter four. We're in the book of Ruth, and I am so glad you're here for the final chapter of Ruth. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, why, why does he have a suit on? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. What, what happened that he has to have a suit on? And the reason I have a suit on is because we're going to a wedding today. Ruth's going to get married. Everybody sing that great hymn. Go into the chapel and God get married. Now that was music when music was music. <laughs> Isn't that great? So, all right. So that's today. Ruth's going to get married. But we're ahead of ourselves. While you find Ruth, eighth book of the Bible, let me see if I can do it. I haven't done it yet this month. I've lied to you every week and said to you, in two minutes, I'm going to tell you the whole story of Ruth. And when I listen to the message online during the week, it's always like four minutes long. I don't know what's wrong with our online service. It just keeps making stuff longer. So here we go. Ruth opens in the land of Bethlehem, husband and wife by the name of Elimelech and Naomi. They have two sons. But there's a famine in the land, so they decide to leave Bethlehem, which is called the house of bread. That's Hebrew, Bethlehem. They move to the country of Moab. And the, there are evil gods, there's child sacrifice, there's just an awful place. And so they move to the land of, say it with me, Moab. Say it. Moab. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. They move there and they live there for a number of years. During that time, the boys grow up and they marry girls from Moab. So now, now are they in an ungodly land. Now the ungodliness is, is throughout their home. It's becoming part of their, their life. Well, in a series of years goes by, and dad dies, and then the two boys die. So all that's left are these three widows, Naomi, and then the two girls who married the guys. Their names are Orpah and Ruth. And so you have this older widow, and then you have these two younger widows. And the older widow is bitter. She's angry at God. She's bitter against all the circumstances of life. But she hears back in Bethlehem, The famine is over. There's bread back in the land of the house of bread. So she's going to go back. So the girls say, we'll go with you. And as they're traveling, she stops and she says, look, girls, why don't you go back to your gods, go back to your people, go back to Moab, marry some men, just start over again, pretend this never happened. Orpah said, okay, I'm out of here. She kisses Ruth or uh, Naomi goodbye. We never hear from Orpah again. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. It's really not not only a commitment to her, but it's to her people and to this family line, and it's a commitment to God. I think it's really your statement of faith. And that's where we began the lesson of resolution. She was so resolved, so committed, not only to God, but then to the relationship to make this thing work. And what we learned in week number one was, it won't work unless you are working it. It takes resolution on your part. Commitment to God, commitment to your partner. Well, as they arrive in Bethlehem, they're broke. They have no money. Ruth goes and gleans a field, meets a guy by the name of Boaz. Say, Boaz. He's the hero. He's the hero. Dun, 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 dun. His name is Boaz. Boaz. Yeah, he, he's riding through, and he says, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. No, she doesn't say that. He says, who is that woman working the field? They said, her, it's that Moabite girl. She came back with Naomi, but she's a good worker. And he likes what he sees, and he loves her character, and she kind of likes his character. And that's the piece of romance. That's chapter two. By chapter three, they're at the threshing floor, and Ruth goes up to Boaz in the night 
uncovers his feet and says, cover me. In other words, marry me. And he says, I'll marry you and I'll buy out your property and I'll take you in. And, and, and he goes, little do you know how much debt I have. He goes, it doesn't matter. I want to marry you. But there's one other kinsman in line in front. That was the tradition of the day. When a widow is there, the, the next of kin would marry and bear children in the name of that, the, the dead man, the dead husband. Aren't you glad we don't have those laws today? Amen? You know, when, you know, when my little brother was dating a girl, getting ready to get married, my older brother and I said, we need to see that girl because just in case something were to happen. We're not doing it. So. Just so glad the law is different. So, so Boaz says, I'm going to come through for you. And, and that's, not just, that's not just resolve and it's not just romance. Now he's saying, I'll buy you out. That's redemption. And that's what it takes for a relationship to work. You have to invest in it. And Boaz will invest deeply and dearly in this relationship. And so here we are. It's chapter 4. Are you ready? And here's the big idea of chapter 4. The idea here is rejoicing. That's our, thir- our fourth R. And the big idea is living God's way is the path to lasting rejoicing. It is the way to lasting happiness, if you will. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there. Just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. This appears to be just a casual meeting, but it's not. It's way more than that. What we have is a town gate. This is like city hall. And this is where personal business and civic arrangements were made, civic affairs were handled. Think of it that way. And this is where property exchanged. And, and so what we have here is a guy who is sitting down to say, I'm going to go through the legal s- stuff with you. And this is the city gate time. So they sit down, they begin to talk, and Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town. Now it's serious because this is going to be documented, okay? 10 of the elders, and he said, sit down, and they do, which means something legal is about to happen. Why 10 elders? The reason was that was the quorum number of the day. That's what you needed for a synagogue. That's what verified a marriage. Um, But that way, too, no one would ever dispute it. There were 10 guys who said, no, that's the way it happened, and that's the way it happened. If you only had one or two, that could, they could dispute this. So this is the way they made, their, that's the way they documented themselves. So when the city sees 10 guys lining up and sitting at the city gate, they know something's up. This is the quorum for the meeting. Verse three, then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of, the, of these seated here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, do so. You want to redeem it? Go ahead, do it. But if you do not, tell me. And that's the way I'll know. For no one has the right to it except you, and I am next in line. He's the next one in line. This is like a will being read, but the girl is still alive. (laughs) This is crazy, but this is what they did. The girl's still alive, and they're saying, we're going to this is the piece of property, her ancestry has it, and they want to keep the property in the family name. And so Boaz unlocks this thing step by step and tells the story. Now, Naomi has this pro- property probably because Elimelech bought it, her husband bought it. When he dies, he's probably not paying taxes on it. So guess what we have? We have a piece of property that could be in debt, but it certainly hasn't been getting the taxes paid on it, which means this is in foreclosure. It's in bad hurt. 
okay? And so the nearest relative now can buy the property out, but when he does, he's gonna buy it out in the name of the survivors, and he won't get to keep it, Wang Ha. He's actually gonna give it to the family that's still alive. But the guy says, that's okay. Uh, end of verse four, he says, I will redeem it. He said, I'll redeem it. So he's a good guy, means well. Then Boaz said, here we go, dun, dun, dun. Now, get, now the plot thickens. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Is this starting to sound like a government contract? Anybody else? Okay, the first part of the four mentioned. Uh, so he's, he's saying, okay, now when you buy the property, you also get this young girl. Oh, by the way, she's from out of town, actually out of country, Moab. That's all he needs to say. And when Elimelech dies, he leaves that property to Malon, which is his son. Malon is married to Ruth, so now Ruth is attached to that property. Is this making sense to you? So she's attached to the property, and whoever buys the property also gets Ruth. And, and when they have children, they'll be named after Malon and then Elimelech. It's going to be in that kind of a line. So at that, the guardian said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it. Can't do it. I'd like the property. I can't take the girl, he's saying. I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I can't take the risk that she might take the other property that I own. It's entangling my property. So he says, it's endangering my estate. So you redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Why does he change his mind? I mean, that's verse 6. At verse 4, what does he say? I'll redeem it. Two verses later, I can't do it. Why is that? The real simple answer is, he cannot take on not only the debt, but the responsibility of another woman. And we're not sure, is, his, you know, is the wife he has, is she going to be suspect of this? Or is it because she's a foreigner, ungodly, he doesn't know her? We really don't know, and there's a lot of speculation to this. But the Hebrew word here is this word endanger. It means to corrupt or pollute. And by that, what we're thinking is, if Ruth gets the right to the property, she may get it to the entire estate which would only encumber or entangle his legal documents. So he's going, I can't do that to the kids who were born to me already. I can't do it. So you, you take it. I would love to have the property. I cannot do this. Either way, uh, this is a guy who's missing a chance at a lifetime. Verse 7. Now earlier in the times of Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. You've got to be kidding me. No, they didn't write it down. They swapped a sandal. That's what they did. Okay, we shake hands, and hundreds of years from now, they're saying, okay, when people make a deal, they exchange germs. Why would you go, <coughs> oh, hi, how are you? Yeah, why would you do that? People would, in other cultures would do that, okay? What we do is normal to us, because it's normal to us. It's what we do. So in that day, when they transferred property rights, the guy would untie his sandal, slide it out in the sand, and the other guy would slide off a sandal, hopefully a right foot to right foot, left foot to left foot, we're hoping. Otherwise, you tend to walk, don't think about it too long, you tend to walk in circles. Yes. Go home and try it this afternoon. So, so they take a shoe off, they swap a shoe. There's some significance to this. Everybody sees that, everybody knows that, plus you have a symbol that is always a lifelong reminder of what's happening. And so that transaction finals, finalizes it, and in a picturesque way, Boaz now has the sandal that has the right to the property, and now he is in that sandal. 
So he has the right, get this now, in that sandal to walk that property. It's kind of the, the picture that they're painting in uh, old Hebrew Jewish history. Verse 9. There, by the way, there's no waiting period. There's no three days. There's no 30 days to get the property. There's nothing... No, uh, there's no inspections. I mean, when you buy a house, you inspect, then you go, why did I pay that money to inspect it? Other stuff broke. They don't do any of that. They just go, you know this property, you know where this is. So he has immediate custody of the property, verse 9. Boaz announced to the elders and the people, today you are witnesses that I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech. He's saying, I bought her out. Great word of redemption, by the way. I bought her out. And Kilion and Malon, those are the sons. You see what he's doing? He's buying, you think of this in our own salvation. What does Jesus do for us? He redeems us, buys us out. This is a great picture, if you will. And pick it up at verse 10. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. See, he he realizes, uh, if we have children, they're all gonna be named after Malon. I don't get this. So I'm doing this, why? Because I love Ruth, not because I want the property. I have enough property. And not because I'll have a lineage of my own, although I will have children. This is going to go after Malon's name. So he says, it'll be after the dead's property so that his name will not disappear from among the family in his hometown. Today you are witnesses of this. This guy will, now about this time, women might be going, this is just repulsive that they're dealing with a woman and he isn't even like wooing her. Oh no, he is wooing her. He's saying, I'll cover you. I will take care of you. You're a woman of character. That's love speak to Ruth. And he's saying, I'll take on your debt. I'll take on the debt of your husband and your father-in-law. And I'll even take on the debt of your mother-in-law. That's love. (laughs) I heard that, but so did Jesus. So... This guy wants Ruth so much, he'll do just about anything to get her. So don't think, of, ladies, don't think of this as women being property. No, he reveres her. He really honors her. Like Peter says, to love your wife in an understanding way, he cherishes this woman to take on that kind of liability. This looks like property exchange. It really does, because he's buying a piece of property and getting Ruth in the midst of that. But don't miss out on the value that he places on Ruth. He'll do anything to get her. Verse 11. Then the elders and all the people in the gate said, we are witnesses. Oh my, this is signing the deal right there. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. It doesn't make sense to you and me because we don't get that. They were the ones who had babies that started the nation of Israel. Just that's the part of that. You're going, oh my, they're talking babies and they're just at the throne, at the stage getting married. And they're only talking about having babies. And may you have a standing in Ephrathah, famous in Bethlehem, through, uh, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like Perez from Tamar, uh, whom Tamar bore in Judah. Another, another statement of how Israel really started as the land of Judah. Uh, these, these women were having children for the lineage. I find this to be funny, too, in a way, because what we have is we have Boaz saying, I want, I, I want to buy the property, but you have first right to it. And by the way, if you get the property, you also get this girl. So then the guy bows out. So then Boaz says, today I buy the property, right? And I take on the debt of all these guys, and I'm taking on all what Naomi has, and I will also get Ruth. What I find interesting of this is as soon as that happens, 
The crowd does not go, oh, I hope you do well with the property. I hope it gives you a great cash crop. I think I've seen good crops on it. I hope your land is weed free. No, they don't talk about the property at all. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about husband-wife relationship immediately. So even though we're thinking property and land and wheat growing on it or barley or whatever it would be, uh, the story is much more than that. The property is almost, well, it is more than secondary. It's almost nothing compared to the fact that he wants Ruth. And that's where the story of Jesus really just pulls at our hearts to realize he takes on our debt, but he really wants us. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Now, writers tell us, and some historians tell us, that probably the whole village showed up for this wedding. This was probably the wedding of the year in Bethlehem. And probably Boaz wore a crown that would have been traditional in the day. He would have manufactured something or had something made. He would have put on the best clothes, and he would have then gotten clothes for Ruth to wear. And tradition was that she'd be bathed and then bathed again in frankincense and myrrh. So she would look wonderful, but she would smell like you ever gotten those magazine things and inside there's a perfume and you pop it open and all of a sudden you have, oh, I got stuff on me. It's a sample from inside of a magazine. And, it, and she's got that all over her. She's just effervescent. You know, she looks great but smells wonderful too. And that would have been the custom of the day. And so verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Get this, in one verse. In one verse. Oh, by the way, they got married, um, got pregnant, had a baby. <laughs> yeah, that is like way fast. Don't you think so? I mean, that's a lot in verse 13. So much of what Boaz and Ruth had longed for there is concluded right here. I find it interesting. Don't forget, Ruth had been married before. Ruth had been married for 10 years and never had a child. Ruth had been married for 10 years, never had a child. Marries Boaz, boom, she's pregnant, has a baby. The miracle of what God does to close a womb, to open a womb, every conception, every birth is a miracle from God. Every one of them. She gets married to the man and, and bears the son and it is a fairy tale coming true. And for Naomi, it's a nightmare turned into a, a wonderful dream. Naomi leaves town and, and becomes empty-handed, actually goes through total destitute uh, seasons in her life, only to find her arms now full again. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Little do they know. They're holding the seed that will become King David. This is the line and lineage of Jesus. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. I love that, to say it to old people. It's good for you to have a baby. It'll make you young again. Isn't that true? Kids make you young again? You would never get out on the floor and roll around if it weren't for kids. Right? It's just something you do. You know, we do crazy things for our kids because we love them. He'll renew your life, sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, get that, your daughter-in-law, number one, your daughter-in-law loves you. You know what they're saying? Our daughter-in-law's, well, maybe not. Maybe they don't love us. But your daughter-in-law loves you and she is better than seven sons. 
Why do they say seven? Because seven's the perfect number. It's like having a quiver full, they call it from the Psalms. It's like you got a bunch of guys. This is, the, this is your future. And they're praising God. And, and they could never have orchestrated this thing. They would never dream this solution up. So may his name be famous. His name will be famous. He'll carry the line that will be King David. And, and he'll be the restorer of our souls. He'll make you young again. And you have a daughter-in-law who loves you. And she's better than a, a row of guys. A symbol of blessing. This is better than you could ever hope for or dream. Think about it. Just four pages earlier, Naomi was out of the house of bread and out of Bethlehem and in Moab and empty-handed and broke and bitter. And three pages later, her daughter-in-law, who's an outsider, she just loves because she brings to him a, a grandchild. It's a beautiful thing. Now, if you're a grandparent here, let me just take a step away for a moment and say parenthetically, that's a great place to be. It's a wonderful thing to be a grandparent. It's a wonderful thing not only for you, but it's a wonderful responsibility to lead little ones to Jesus as well. And you have that, re- you have that privilege, really. You say, well, my kids don't come to church, but some of you bring your grandkids to church. You, and you, you always tell me, well, I brought my grandkids to church. I wish my kids had come to church. It's the way it always goes. I wish my kids would come to church. They'll come, don't worry, because your grandkids will get them to come. Don't worry about that. But some of you bring grandchildren, and something happens with grandmother and grandfather because you have these privileges without quite so many responsibilities. And your children will come around if you, they'll get Jesus from both sides, from you and their own children. And, And then they'll see, they'll come to light just how good life is when you follow the Lord. So I I say to you, if you're a grandparent, it's a a wonderful thing, and it it provides for you a place for emotional support for those kids. You don't understand it. You don't see the impact you have on them, but that's what you have is emotional support. You're also the plan of salvation for them, spoken and unspoken, without any pressure. You are the place for wise counsel. It's safe. They can talk to you. It's nonjudgmental. You can be a sounding board for decision-making and a prayer base. I tell you, if you're a grandparent, it's a wonderful place for you to be for the sake of your grandchildren. Don't ever give that up because you don't know the influence you will have. One of the writers of the New Testament, or one of the pastors of the New Testament, I misspoke. One of the pastors of the New Testament church, his name's Timothy, was raised by his mother and his grandmother. So don't look down on what you get to do as a grandparent. I was thinking about that this week. Because I, I tell you funny things about my mom. But my mom prays. And I, the reason I can tell you funny things is because she does funny things all the time. It's crazy stuff all the time. But my mom prays for our grandkids, for her grandkids. And she prays for all of them. She loves them. She brags on them. I'll call to talk to her. She'll tell me about other grandkids. Not my children, but other grandkids. Uh, the, other, the cousins. And how they're doing and where they are and their jobs and and their education, they're just so pleased for them. And, and it's just a fun spot to be in for her. I, in fact, I, I, uh, I stopped and saw her, this was a few years ago, and my dad had just passed away, and I, I would stop by. We made this rotation, each of the kids making a rotation to stop and see her. So every three months, we wanted someone to come by the house. I, I noticed there were grandkids' pictures everywhere, everywhere. And... And uh, 
my brother Jim was next to come in, and uh, so I'm flying out, he's flying in, I call him, hey, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, is it me, or uh, it's a lot of pictures of the grandkids. He says, yeah, really a lot. I, did you find any of yourself? No, I, I didn't either. <laughs> Just the grandkids, yes, that's what I noticed too. Okay, I feel better about myself. You know, he's put that down. Um, my mom prayed for the grandkids. Uh, Wanda's mom prays for the grandkids, and then she asks about them by name. She remembers their names. That's a, a wonderful thing in a world that just doesn't count for names. And then she encourages them. And then she goes back again and prays for them again. And then asks how their life is by name. And then she encourages them. And her real role is encouraging them towards godliness and she loves doing it, and we love her doing it. You don't know just how good it could be. Uh, you don't know just the impact you have on your grandkids. So keep up the great work. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Some say this is uh, innuendo towards adoption. In other words, she nursed this little baby boy named Obed. Uh, I'm not sure it happened. I think she was probably the care for Ruth so Ruth could rest. The women living there said, get this, do they say Ruth has a baby? No, what do they say? Naomi has a baby. See, so I think what you have is you have Naomi walking through town. Hey, look, look at here. <laughs> yeah, isn't he gorgeous? Don't say anything bad. I'm standing here, I could take you down. And she's walking through town with this little guy and the town says, Naomi has a baby. And they named him, and some scholars say they refers back to the town women. The town women maybe named the baby. So Ruth and Boaz didn't even name him. We're not sure. Obed means servant, short for Obadiah. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family of Perez. Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, get this now, slow it down. Father of Boaz, we're coming in for the landing. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. That's going to become the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. They are holding in their arms the line to royalty. So why would you even include this? You would include this because probably this was written well after the fact, when David's becoming king and they're establishing now in print form this record of David's lineage, which will become the lineage to Christ, the Savior. And what it does, too, is it tells you and me, even in the lineage of Christ, the Savior, there are outsiders like Ruth who come in to the miracle and tell us that God is loving not just of his own people, but loving of all people outsiders included. And the big idea is that you live that way with great faith. It's the path to lasting rejoicing. So I just want to close with a handful of observations. One is God's love to us has no limit. He doesn't know limits to the love. He'll go to any extent. His grace is unmeasured. Um, his grace is unmeasured and and you know, how you, you know how you have things in your life that say they will save you or make your life better 
and they just can't come true. They just say, your life will change when you do this or join that or become part of this. That happened with the first kinsman redeemer who could not redeem. You ever had something say, I'll make, your, I'll make a miracle in your life, but it cannot redeem. And it's unnamed. Why? Because it's that, there's that many different promises out there. And God in his grace doesn't even tell you the name of that other kinsman redeemer. But we all know we've had hopes and promises that cannot redeem our lives. God's grace is unmeasured. It's just spectacular. Thirdly, God's faithfulness is unquestioned. We don't have to wonder, even in the details, he's involved in our lives. Even in the details, he's faithfully there. And finally, his sovereignty is totally, totally awesome because we can't see his control, but we do know he is out for good. And, and if you'd read this earlier on, you'd say, man, Ruth is in a bad place. She's never getting out of the hole. She's going to be in a foreign country. No one's going to trust her. She'll never be loved. And two pages later, she's holding a little baby and married to a guy who owns the whole farm. And they're a God-fearing family. And they live happily ever after. It's a season for rejoicing. And 1,300 years before Christ even comes to demonstrate his love for us, God demonstrates his love for us in this type, this, this word picture called Ruth. So here we go. We're in need of someone to pay our debt. We know that. Christ does for that for us. He redeemed us in order that we could be, become right through Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter three says. And we were dead and needed new life. And what does Peter tell us? Peter tells us that we have a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. He gives us this life that we desperately need. We're dead to whatever we think might work. And we need someone near kinsman to us because we need someone close by. And this is love, that, not, that God, uh, not that we love God, but that he loved us. He came towards us and sent his son near kinsman to God. And then that puts us in a place of new ownership and management. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are not our own. Like Ruth being bought out, we are bought out through the precious blood of Christ. And that allows us to have a fresh start, a new inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. He chose us and in love he predestined us for adoption. We don't understand it all the way, but we, we do know this. He's made us, taken us into his family According to his pleasure of his will, he wanted, get that, verse 7, he wanted to do that, just like Boaz wanted to marry Ruth. Jesus wants to take you into his family. So if you have personal faith in Christ, let me just tell you, today, revel in the incredible watch care that God has for you. Know that even in the circumstances when you don't always get it, he will not leave you without hope or without a plan. There is never a doubt that he has incredible love for you and for me. Because he took you and me from sinner to saint, from stranger to friend, from outcast to child, just like he did Ruth, from lost to redeemed, and from beggar to bride. You're in the royal family. So we, we live differently, we love differently, and Every day of our lives, it changes the posture of our lives knowing that God is out for our good, even on his way, as he is out for his own glory. Amen? Let's bow for prayer. 
Would you stand with me as we pray? I'll be off to the side in the front if you need to pray. And let me just encourage you, if you've never trusted Christ, you can do that right where you're standing. Open your heart to him. But if you need someone to pray with you, you have a special need, I'll be up here on the left. God Almighty in heaven, we, we see just how marvelously you work in the details of each of the lives. In Old Testament stories, we see uh, grace even before Christ comes and mercy and, and patience and blessing and certainly love. And your word for us is settled in heaven. This story is beautiful. We marvel not just at the historic record and we do marvel at that but we, we marvel at the poetic beauty of this story and no one could put this together in this way apart from being in charge of all events and so we submit to you as sovereign Lord over all and it's in your sovereign grace that you chose to demonstrate your love towards us and so we thank you. So may we be, we pray as we leave this place, may we be the most loving and generous and kind-hearted people in the world because the love revolution has touched our lives and you have convinced us of your kindness. And so we live it out as our way of saying thank you for your kindness towards us. May we be the kindest people on the planet. We pray in Christ our wonderful name and the church says amen.